All right, good morning, everyone. I can't tell what's going on. It's been a morning where every clock I look at is saying something different, including my wristwatch. So I have no idea if we're on time or not. Probably a minute or two late. Let's, uh, it's, it's 8.02 according to, oh, well, my iPhone would never deceive me. <laughs> uh, well, let's, um, let's get into the text. This is going to be, uh, Has American Christianity Failed? by Brian Wolfmuller, and we're going to be looking at baptism. We, we kind of started talking about this, of course, um, in the weeks previous, just talking about the distinction between internal and external and how the word and sacraments of Christ are external, and thus we can derive comfort from them when internally we're in all kinds of strife and turmoil, our conscience is unsettled. And we're going to today really uh, um, look at baptism, laying the foundation and going through that. And then, God willing, if we have time, we'll get into the question of um, infant baptism, a little bit of a misnomer. I'll explain that in a moment. But before we begin with the text, we begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. And it looks like no sooner than we prayed, I shut my book on the page. (laughs) Off to a fantastic start here. Give me one second um, while I retrace. Okay, looks like we left off somewhere right around page 128 with uh, baptism. And we're um, in the subsection, what's the big deal about baptism? And uh, just by way of slight review over on 127 at the second to the last full paragraph on the page, of course, Wolf Mueller is citing for us Acts 2, 38 through 39, after Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon all of, all of them. The uh, tongues of fire are over their heads. They're speaking in tongues, that is, in other intelligible human languages. And Peter preaches a sermon, and the people are cut to the heart, and they say, what, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, repent and be baptized. Now, um, next verse. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Come on in. So, um, then over on page 128, uh, if you look at the second paragraph, and we covered this last week, uh, we move from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 22. We're talking about um, Saul who is, of course, knocked down on the road to Damascus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, etc. And then in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Ananias says to Paul, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And Wolfmuller comments, wash away your sins seems a far cry from make a public testimony of your faith. (laughs) 
Right, because it's, I mean, and that's the truth. Baptism from the earliest days forward, there's nothing particularly public about it. There's nothing particularly private about it. But it's just not, hey, everybody, gather around and look at me. I am now making a public testimony of my faith. You don't find that theology biblically. But what you do find is a connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, and we see that here in Acts chapter 22, um, Wash away your sins, calling on his name. How? By rising and being baptized. All right, and then, um, certainly last but not least, uh, in these, um, these first three texts that Wolf Mueller presents, um, middle of page 128, here quoted, um, and Wolf Mueller says, I studied the biblical passages about baptism. As I studied them, this much became clear. Baptism has something to do with salvation. Text after text confirms this. Jesus, before his ascension, sends out his disciples to the world, saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." All right, well, what do we see here? Not to you know, pound on the obvious, but to be saved, one needs to be a disciple of Jesus, a believer in Jesus. How does one become a disciple? Well, you make disciples by doing two things. Baptizing, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. So baptism and teaching is the way by which Christ commands his disciples to go and make other disciples. Okay, so your very entry point into discipleship is baptism, and your continuation as his disciple is you're continuing to receive his teaching. Now, of course, here we can already see an answer to one of our questions today. You know, can I, can I just be a Christian and cut myself entirely off from the church? Well, you've cut yourself off entirely from the church. You've cut yourself off entirely from the teaching. And so, no. Even from this angle, no. Now, we've got other more explicit texts we could point to, but fundamental is that you, that you be baptized. And, of course, there's more to baptism than just the one-time event. But then that you continually be taught. And Christ desires to teach his church through the office of holy ministry that he gives to the church, to the men he calls into that office through them. And um, thus he can say, whoever hears you, hears me. So we want to hear that living voice of the living Christ. His word proclaimed, his, gospels administer, his gospel administered rightly. Um, and his uh, sacraments distributed. So word and sacraments then become the mark of where Christ himself is. All right, well, anyway, retracing now just to what foundation we have laid. We have seen how baptism is connected with the forgiveness of sins. We've seen how it's a washing away of sins. We've seen how it's how you become a disciple. Um, We even saw in Acts 2 the connection with receiving the Holy Spirit. And we're just going to keep going on with some biblical texts. So uh, let me pause here, see if you have any questions on those first three texts, this kind of mini foundation that Wolf Mueller has laid for us. Otherwise, as you can see in this page and the next, um, it's almost nothing but Bible verses. And that's great. We'll just look and see what the Bible says. (laughs) 
waiting for the microphone here. There is a passage in Acts, uh, I forget exactly, I think it's 16 or something, where it specifically says, and children are to be baptized. Mm-hmm. But these these passages that we've read um, really are inclusive. I mean, I don't see where you could say, uh, baptize everyone but your children. Right. <laughs> right, it's a great point. So as we... Um as we go through this section, we're going to hit page 131, and we're going to deal with this, um, this topic, what about the babies, as Wolf Mueller puts it. And we're going to look at that specific text um, where Peter says this promise is for you and for your children. That's the same Pentecost sermon context in Acts chapter 2. So we're going to take a look at that. But you're exactly right. I mean, if baptism already laid out, um, repent and be baptized every one of you, Peter says, well, unless you're you know, of a certain age. There's no such asterisk. He's just speaking to a crowd. We know that, um, how many were added that day? Was it, was it 3,000? Yeah, that rings a bell. 3,000 were added that day. This is a huge, massive crowd of people to whom Peter is speaking. And he's not like, well, you know, unless you're, uh, unless you're under five, unless you uh, are, are under six months. There's nothing like that. Just repent and be baptized, every one of you. We see, too, in St. Paul that the reason to be baptized is for the washing away of your sins. Do little kids have sins? Have you ever had a little kid? <laughs> have you had a little kid? You know they have sins. Yeah, you know that they're by nature fallen just as we are. They're self-centered and um, yeah, just as we are. Um, so there's, there's no difference. They need the forgiveness of sins, too. And then, yes, I, already we're here at the text um, I, that I think is all you need. Um, make disciples of... All nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Well, all nations except for red-headed people? No. So we're not going to discriminate on the base of hair color. Baptize all nations except for people under 100 pounds. No, we're not going to discriminate on the basis of weight. Baptize all people, or, or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them except for people over the age of 70. No, we're not going to discriminate on that end of the age spectrum. Then, baptize all nations except for babies. Why would we suddenly discriminate? You see how little sense it makes? All nations means all nations. There's no room for arbitrary discrimination. And we would call it out in any other instance, but why not with babies? Well, because people don't like babies. Why do people not like babies? Well, a variety of reasons. Look at our culture. Um, That's one aspect of not liking babies. Um, But another aspect, a theological aspect of not liking babies is just like this. If that baby can get in, what am I, chopped liver? What am I with all of my willpower and morality and sacrifices and virtues and my theological knowledge and understanding? What am I, chopped liver, if Jesus is going to receive into the kingdom a little child with none of these things that I have, just as he would receive me? That's an insult. So the fact that Jesus says, let the little children come unto me and do not hinder them is an is. Uh, of course, off-putting to his disciples. Remember, they're forbidding them. No, 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 no. Jesus is for important people. People who have reached the age of accountability, people who can make their own decision, people who can exercise virtue and have their theological acumen raised. Keep your little babies away from him. He's a busy, important guy. 
And Jesus is perfectly okay with that, right? No, he's indignant. And he rebukes his disciples. He doesn't just pull them aside and say, hey, hey guys, this is a mistake. You know, I, I'm not really busy. Bring the babies over. No, he rebukes them and says, do not forbid them, for of such as these is the kingdom. In other words, not only are they welcomed into the kingdom, just like any other sinner, but there's even more to what Christ is saying. This is, uh, this is iconic. This is what the kingdom is. Bringing in unworthy little infants. For all the reasons you would exclude them, that's precisely why I welcome them. How do we know that that's what Jesus is, is thinking? Because it's precisely what he says next. Unless you, he says to his disciples, repent and become as one of these, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we're all little infants. We all have nothing to offer Jesus. And these little infants, too, were being born in their mother's arms to Jesus. And so there's this sense in which the Holy Spirit bears us to Christ. And we don't claim any credit in coming to him ourselves or offering him anything, any worthiness or abilities within us. He simply receives us, puts his hand on us, and blesses us. That's how his view is towards little children. So we need to be really careful when we're going to make, draw out some theology of why little children couldn't, in fact, come to Jesus for baptism. <laughs> we're going to need a little bit more than some kind of argument from absence, particularly when, as we're going to see, we have Jesus expanding baptism to all nations, full stop. And then we're going to see examples of all households, full stop. And then we're even going to have Peter say, this promise is for you and for your children. We could lean on St. Paul also, who calls the Red Sea a baptism. Remember this? In 1 Corinthians 10, um, they passed through the Red Sea. They were baptized through Moses and through the cloud. So, you know, could you imagine Moses? Okay, everyone, we're going through the Red Sea. This is going to be a type and foreshadowing of baptism. But because little children are excluded, I'd, I'd like to ask for anyone under the age of accountability, what's that, Moses? I don't know. I don't know, but anyone under the anyone who can't make a decision for themselves to come through these waters, I think should probably go around. Could you just please go around? This this baptism isn't for you. This passing through the Red Sea isn't. No, of course that's not what Moses does. They all pass through the Red Sea. They all pass through the water. The fact that St. Paul pulls this into uh, comparison with Christian baptism, the inference is clear. Baptism is for Everyone, the Red Sea, no one was excluded from the Red Sea. Hey, except for you really young kids, sorry, you're going to have to crawl around. Um, no, and so nor does, nor does uh, Christian baptism somehow exclude the very young either. So there's all kinds of biblical arguments we can make in this regard. Um, and, you know, it'll just be very clear. Least of all, though, do you want to put yourself in the position of those disciples being like, no, keep the little children away from Jesus until they can decide for themselves. So, anyway, we got ahead of ourselves, but, you know, it was fun. So, no, it was great. Why not? All right, and that helps us understand. I mean, obviously, we're launching off on Matthew 28, and that's one of the clear applications of Matthew 28. It's just that discipleship is for all, regardless of age, and thus baptism and teaching are for all, regardless of age. You know, this whole business about, like, I want them to decide for themselves when they're baptized is like, well, do you want them to decide from the, for themselves when you're going to teach them about Jesus? Because isn't that the same principle? Why would baptism be different than teaching? And why would you arbitrate? If you're not going to, quote-unquote, force baptism down your child's throat, then why would you ever force 
Christ down their throat. Some following this logical consistency, unfortunately, could you imagine the spiritual insanity of this? Try to raise their children as spiritually neutral. Well, we're Christian, but you don't have to be until you can make a decision for Christ. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's just absolute spiritual child abuse. What would the equivalent of this be? Mm, I'm not going to really change your diaper until you, uh, you know, tell me you want me to change your diaper. I'm not really going to feed you until you tell me in words with your own free will that you want me to feed you. I'm, not, I'm just going to leave that neutral and you can, you can let me know I want to respect your autonomy and your free will. I would never foist anything upon you. I mean, can you see how this is spiritually insane? And if we, if we force what's proper and right upon our children in temporal and earthly things, then how much more ought we the spiritual things? You see? And then if they turn away from it, they turn away from it. That's their business. But even then, we'll fight them tooth and nail. While you're under my roof, you're going to eat well. While you're under my roof, you're going to go to church. <laughs> you know, we do this kind of thing all the time. It's called good parenting. And so we just need to, we, we can make that naturalistic kind of argument too. Mm-hmm, please, I see a hand. I've thought it's like not speaking to your child because they haven't picked the language that you, they might want to speak. It's depriving them of language. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Another example, yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing that's just dawning on me, and I hope this isn't going too far afield, but it hit me that Christ says, whoever gives a cup of cold water to a little child mm-hmm. has his reward. And I'm thinking, he could have picked some other thing to give. But why did he pick a cup of cold water? Both the word cup and water and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Of course, children in the ancient world were just almost universally despised. And so the inclusivity of Christianity within them shows, shows God's love uh, for children. We, and we've got a really toxic relationship with kids, don't we, in our culture? We either abort them or worship them. Oh, not, really, not really anything properly ordered. Our kids, our kids, if they make it out of the womb, become our idols. We do everything for them. Um, let them do whatever they want. Uh, but of course, if we can prevent them from coming out of the womb, we'll try that too. So it's a bizarre and messed up relationship we have with kids. Yeah, okay, so Jesus, inclusive of all ages, all races, all peoples, all nations. Full stop. Let's go a little further. Second half of the page, um, 128, Wolf Mueller writes, In baptism, the Lord's name is put on us. Now, you remember, it's baptism in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from Matthew 28. So, um, the Lord puts his name on us. We are adopted into his family. And we put on Christ. So just really quickly here, of course, your first name tells us who you are as an individual. Your last name tells us what family you belong to, what earthly family. Baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is your last, last name. And it puts you into the family of God. And so this is your new and deepest identity. Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is who you are. You're a son of God, a daughter of God. And so that's your deepest identity. It's your last, last name. And again, if we view these texts to the, to, to the angle of this question, whose work is baptism? 
Well, we've seen baptism forgives sins and gives the Holy Spirit. Is that, is that something I do through my act of obedience? No. Yeah, baptism is a washing away of sins. Is that something I do through my obedience? No, that's something God does to me. Um, baptism is uh, baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is that something I can do? I can just reach up into heaven, grab God's name, and put it on me? I can adopt myself into his family? No. He places his name upon me. He adopts me into his family. He gives me this new birth and makes me his child. So what we're doing is just tracing through the biblical text, and we're seeing that this idea that baptism is somehow my work or my act of obedience by which God is supposed to be impressed is so far alien from the scriptures, which everywhere speak of baptism in a way that it is most definitively something God is doing to us and for us. Okay, so we just want to be tracing that as we, as we go along, too. All right, and we're going to see it in, um, indicated here even in Galatians 3, uh, 25 through 27, which Wolfmuller is now going to quote Paul writing to the Galatians. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, in the first place, uh, you're no longer under a guardian. Now, Paul's talking about that as, as the law, the tutor or guardian that's pointing us to Christ Jesus. And then in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God. Well, who's Christ Jesus himself? He's the Son of God. And so we want to see that connection um, through faith and through baptism. Now, these two things are connected in Paul's thought. They're never op- opposed to each other. Because if you have faith, you're going to be baptized. If you're baptized, you're going to have faith. We're going to see that in the next verse, uh, quoted Mark 16, 16. So if that's confusing to you, just hold pause on there, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But the connection here is that you're all, um, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. That is, being in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, you are all sons of God, and this through faith. Then he goes on, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ. You see, how is it in the previous clause that in Christ you are all sons of God? How do I get in Christ? And now he tells us, baptized into Christ. And you can see the two parallel statements, but fundamentally that is a question, is it not? How do I get in Christ? Well, in one sense, faith, but in another sense, baptism. And these two things are never scripturally pitted against each other. Never in the scriptures is it faith, not baptism, or baptism, not faith. It's always faith and baptism together. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this text. Again, it's going to be made more clear in Mark 16. That's why he follows it up exactly with that. But I'm just trying to get you to see this language of in Christ through faith, first clause, second clause, um, baptized into Christ. Okay, And then you have put on Christ. You've been clothed in Christ. All right, well, there's a number of ways to understand that, but um, maybe I'll just pick a couple. Um, okay, so how do you clothe yourself in Christ? How does, a, how does a pagan walking down the sidewalk of San Clemente clothe himself in Christ? That's impossible. Christ has to be given to you such that you can clothe yourself in him. So again, we're saying baptism is God's work. He gives you the clothing that is Christ. Now, what is this clothing that is Christ? I think the earliest reference to this, if we were looking for the scriptures, would be in Genesis. Remember when Adam and Eve, newly fallen, are walking out of the garden? And uh, 
What does God do for them? They've tried to, they've tried to hide their nakedness how? Yeah, sewing fig leaves together. Here's an image of our works righteousness. <laughs> how well do the fig leaves do? Not very well, especially when you have that stiff Edenic breeze coming through. All of a sudden, those self-made garments don't do the job, do they? So God does something. What does he do? Kills an animal. An innocent dies for the guilty. Already we see Christ. And he doesn't just die, but he dies for the sake that the skins of the animal might be taken and wrapped around Adam and Eve to clothe and cover their nakedness, their sin. Make sense? Okay, so to be clothed in Christ. Well, what of Christ? He dies, the innocent for the guilty, and he, in effect, is the skin that clothes and covers us, hiding our sins, hiding our nakedness from God the Father. Do you see that? Now, maybe more poignantly, what happens to Jesus? Um, How is he crucified? As a lamb before his shearers is silent, he opens not his mouth. What do shearers do? Take off the wool. So Jesus is stripped. He's crucified uh, naked. The the loincloth that you always see on the crucifix or in the pictures is just for piety's sake, not historically accurate. He is stripped and naked. He is sheared as the Lamb of God. But then, but then follow that clothing. What happens? Now, to fulfill prophecy for some of the clothing, they cast lots. Now, I mean, this is a tangent, of course, but just marvel at this. How on earth does Jesus, crucified on the cross, get these soldiers to fulfill this prophecy? You can't. You don't. The fact that it happens, the fact that this prophecy is fulfilled, confirms that this is the hand of God and the scriptures are the prophecy of God and Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So they cast lots for his clothing. But not all of his clothing. Um, Yeah, well, they divide it up. Yeah, and then they cast lots for his robe. Do they not? Because why? They don't want to cut it up and divide it. It's a seamless robe. So they cast lots for his robe. Okay, who's going to get it? All right. And then consider this that one of the very people who crucifies Jesus ends up being literally clothed in his robe. That's kind of an amazing and poignant thing. Someone around, you know, one of those soldiers was walking around who had crucified Jesus, literally clothed in the robe of Christ. Okay, but, but what do we see in these things? That it's not just that soldier who crucified him, but in fact, all of us have crucified him with our sins with our participation in the human race and its rebellion. And we too, just like that soldier, have now been clothed in Christ. He's stripped on the cross and made naked that we who are naked in sins might be clothed. All right. And there's many other ways that we could embellish and enrich this theology, biblically speaking. But I've just tried to hit two of the main points. So that when Paul says that in baptism you are all now clothed in Christ, the image is that we're coming into baptism naked in our sins. Which, by the way... It's one of the reasons why historically there are baptistries set apart from the sanctuary proper in many churches, especially the more ancient churches, because baptism was done naked. And so baptism itself was kind of a private thing. And even then the bishop or pastor who was there um, would sometimes be uh, behind a veil. Um, You know, decency and modesty was kept in good order. Um, Women who were baptized would sometimes be, um, have 
have female attendants there to help them. Precisely, everything again done in good order. But baptism was done in the nude. Why? Because there is an actual experience of sin when you're naked. Of shame. Of not being right. And it's into those waters that you go. You actually experience all of that, you know, kind of panic and embarrassment and uncomfortability. You experience that as you go into the waters. And as soon as you come up out of those waters, what do the attendants do? Wrap you in a robe, in a fresh, white, clean robe, to show that you have now, you who are naked like Adam and Eve, have now been clothed in the one, the innocent one who is slain. You've been clothed in his perfect righteousness. Now, if you've been through this as your baptismal rite, as so much of the early church uh, had been uh, baptized, then Paul's words ring especially true. As many of you, as were baptized, have put on Christ. You've been clothed in Christ. Your nakedness hidden. Your new life in Him begun. Okay, lengthy explanation. Sorry for that. Hopefully you were able to follow, but really, really rich theology and showing how Again, baptism is something God does to us, and he gives us this garment of righteousness so that Paul can say, we can put on Christ, put on that garment we've been given. Joseph and the technicolor dream coat, same theology. That's what that's about, actually. Remember, it gets stained by blood. Ah, yeah. And the son who the father thought was dead turns out to be Alive, all types and foreshadowings of this theology. Yeah. Okay, so everybody good on Galatians three twenty-five to twenty-seven. All right, um, let's go on to Mark sixteen sixteen and see the connection between faith and baptism. Now, um, by way of preface, I don't think uh, Wolf Mueller comments on it here, but by way of preface, you know, if you've spent any time reading or thinking about kind of. Um, or talking with American evangelicals and the, and the idea that baptism is just symbolic and it's your act of obedience. And what you'll, what you'll commonly find is a pitting of faith against baptism. Well, if I'm saved by faith and faith alone, I can't be saved by baptism. Okay? And so there's this pitting of faith against baptism. And, well, I'm going to stick with faith, so therefore baptism has to be symbolic and baptism has to be an act of obedience and baptism certainly can't save, that kind of thing. But what I want you to see is how baptism and faith biblically are always connected. They're never set in opposition to each other. It's not faith or baptism ever. It's baptism and faith. We're going to see that in Mark 16. Now, how do we understand this again? Since we're in kind of basic rudimentary mode, that's all well and good. Christ's death on the cross, as well as his resurrection, are given to us in holy baptism. Faith receives this baptism and clings to it, so that in Romans 6 we are buried with Christ through baptism, that we also might be raised with Christ. You see, through baptism, his burial becomes my burial. I'm buried with him through baptism. His resurrection becomes my resurrection. I'm raised with him through baptism. Okay, so this is the idea. It's not, it's not faith or baptism. Rather, it's Christ crucified and risen, coming to me through baptism, received by faith. So my, sa- my faith saves me because I receive this action of God. I believe it. Baptism saves me because it's the means and mode through which he gives Christ crucified and risen to me and incorporates me into that reality. 
You see? The cross alone saves me, um, and the resurrection alone saves me. This event saves me, because objectively, that's the victory, and that's the content that then is distributed to me through baptism that then I believe in and am saved. So you can point at any one of these points and say the cross alone saves you, or baptism saves you, or faith saves you, and they're all true. And lo and behold, that's exactly how the Bible speaks, as we're going to see. Okay, so Mark 16, 16, really helpful because it connects baptism and faith. Um, Jesus, our Lord himself, does. Wolf Miller writes, again, immediately before his ascension, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, if baptism is your work, what has Jesus just taught you? Faith alone plus your work and you'll be saved. Is that what Jesus is doing? Perish the thought. Absolutely not. But see, you see then the problem with baptism as your work. If baptism is your act of obedience, your public testimony, then what Jesus is saying is, by faith and by your first act of obedience, by faith and by your public testimony, you will be saved. So we are, in fact, saved by works. No, you don't want to go there? Okay, let's rethink our baptismal theology. All right. So faith is a gift. Baptism is a gift. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Both of these are things that God does in us to us by the power of his word and spirit. Baptism and salvation, Wolfmuller writes, again, are neighbors in the same sentence. Salvation, of course, is not without faith, but neither is it without baptism. All right, now quoting John 3, 5. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Wolfmuller writes, baptism teaches, uh, baptism teaches Jesus has to do with entering the kingdom of God. In our baptism, we are buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. Now, quoting Romans 6 that I quoted just a moment ago. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Wolfmuller writes, Paul does not say we are, quote-unquote, symbolically buried with Christ. No, he says that in baptism we, quote, were buried with Christ, end quote. Baptism is more than a symbol. It is a real thing. Paul takes up this same thing again in Colossians, comparing baptism to a circumcision of the heart. All right, but let's pause there. Romans 6, John 3, Mark 16, Matthew 28, Acts 22, Acts 2. Baptism's kind of a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, and God really spells this out in many and various ways so that we can come to see the fullness of this gift that he gives to us. And then our faith clings to that. And this is why in our hymnody we have this glorious boast, I am baptized into Christ. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know my sin doesn't have the last word? How do I know that death doesn't have the last word? How do I know that the devil, my accuser, doesn't have the last word? Because God has the last word and he has baptized me into Christ. All right, so baptism is the ground of our, of our spiritual warfare. 
Um, it's something God does to us to which we can always return. And it's outside of us. It's something he gives to us. And so it's sure and certain. All right, before we move on to baptism and the comparison Paul makes um, to circumcision, which, wait, circumcision went to who? Jews. Jews? What age? Yeah, ideally young. Yeah, if it had to happen to you later in life, yeah. I mean, there are lots of examples of that. But, but circumcision was for little boys of eight days old. But wait, what about their free will decision? What about the fact that they can't have faith? What about... No, it's for them. And so when Paul makes the comparison, we can't help but also infer that if circumcision is for babies all the way up to adults, then baptism would also be for babies all the way up to adults. And in fact, um, there is some precedent in this, in the history of the church, to be baptized on the eighth day, whether it's a Sunday or not, just baptized on the eighth day. All right, but let's see what uh, St. Paul does with this. So just picking up in the middle of that um, paragraph, again, that Wolf Mueller writes toward the top of 129, baptism is more than a symbol. It is a real thing. Paul takes up this same theme again in Colossians, comparing baptism to the circumcision of the heart. All right, now quoting from Colossians chapter 2. In him, that is in Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Okay, what is buried in baptism? Well, you are, but what part of you particularly needs to die with Christ? Your old man, your flesh. So what's the circumcision that's happening? Your old man and flesh is being cut off from you without hands through baptism and being buried in the tomb of Christ. You see how that's a circumcision? Okay. Having been buried with him, with Christ, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. All right, well, whose, job, whose work is this baptism and faith, this circumcision made without hands, this death and resurrection? The powerful working of God. Paul continues, who raised him, that is Christ, from the dead. And of course, with him, all of us. Paul says, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Again, what's his instrument for doing this? Baptism. But not baptism apart from faith. Baptism with faith, of course. But baptism is his instrument. This is the, this is the circumcision made without hands. Okay, Before you're dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That means there you are dead in your trespasses with your dead uncircumcised flesh. All right? Until what? God made you alive together with Christ. And how does he do this? Well, that's the previous clause that we already covered. Having been buried with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with him. In which means baptism. You were also raised with him through faith. So we've already laid, Paul's already laid this paradigm for us now. So being made alive together with him, 
is this circumcision made without hands, made via baptism, by which the deadness of our trespasses, the uncircumcision of our flesh, these things are cut off by baptism, such that by baptism also we are made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I don't know why exactly Wolf Mueller adds this part, except for it's wonderful. I mean, it's great. It's just not directly related to baptism, except in this regard, maybe, that it connects baptism again to the cross of Jesus. These are one and the same reality. You know the hymn, I I love this hymn, Go to Dark Gethsemane, but you can't actually go there. And even if you did hop on a plane and go there, what would you see? I don't know, maybe a bunch of tourist stuff. Has anyone been? Um, You're not going to see Jesus there. So how do you actually go to dark Gethsemane? How actually do you go to the foot of the cross? And one answer, biblically given, is baptism. That's where you find the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how you are um, both with John the disciple at the cross of Jesus and Mary Magdalene in the garden at the resurrection of Jesus. How do you get to the cross and resurrection of Jesus? Holy baptism, because in holy baptism are both of these realities. All right, well, I know it can be difficult um, to grasp a verse for yourself when you have someone like me interjecting and explaining all the way along. So for those of you listening online, pause the video here, reread this text, and see if it makes sense to you exactly as I explained. I guarantee it will. Um, This is solid, straightforward theology that Paul does here in Colossians. And it's very similar to what he does in Romans 6. So don't be afraid to pause and, in fact, read both of those sections together. You'll get what Paul's saying, and you'll see that baptism is something God does to us. It's a circumcision that he does without hands, cutting off from us our sinful flesh, bearing it with Christ, and raising up in us a new flesh, a new man, um, resurrected with Christ. All right. Wolf Mueller continues, Again and again, the Bible, it, uh, the biblical testimony about baptism seems a far cry from a quote-unquote first act of obedience or, quote, the believer's testimony of faith, end quote. Again and again, baptism is bound up to salvation and faith is bound up to baptism. Now, quoting Titus 3, 4 through 7, Paul writes, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Now that's palingenesis, that's literally birth again, new birth. So by the washing of new birth and renewal, being made new, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All right, so according to St. Paul then, who is doing the baptizing? Well, let's just kind of follow the subject. So, um, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now we know that this is the Heavenly Father, And of course, the goodness and loving kindness of him appearing is Jesus. (laughs) 
So the Father saved us, not because of works that we've done in righteousness, but according to the Father's own mercy. How? How did he save us? That's the question. By the washing of regeneration. You see water and new birth? That's baptism. And being made new, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Remember, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God the Father poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So, the Father pours out this washing of water and the Spirit, and it comes through Jesus our Savior to us, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, why does it need to go through Jesus to us? Well, in the first place, because he's the crucified. And so, that pouring out of water and the Spirit goes through Christ, the crucified, purifying us of our sins. Through Christ, the resurrected, raising us to walk in newness of life. Through Christ, because Christ is our pastor, the pastor and bishop of our souls. And so, all baptism is God's work regardless of the human being who baptized. You know, whether you were baptized by a a pastor in this denomination or that denomination or by your aunt in the kitchen sink or um, a nurse at the hospital, whoever baptized you, it was in fact, according to St. Paul, God the Father himself who baptized you through Jesus Christ, his Son, pouring out upon you this lavish washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And by this he saved you so that you're justified not by any works of righteousness you've done, but by his grace, by what he's done. And thus he has made you heirs. How do you become an heir of Bill Gates? You can't be. You have to be born Bill Gates' son. So he's made you heirs. How? By giving you new birth and making you his son so that you will have the hope of eternal life. So through this new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, he makes you sons, he makes you heirs or inheritors of the hope of eternal life. All right, well, it couldn't be more plain that God is the one doing the doing. And that's um, really the strength of this. Um, We are baptized by the Father and the Son. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit, given this gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, that's Titus 3, 4. Shall we do one more or shall we pause there? Any questions, any thoughts? Anything stand out to you? All right, this is a biblical tour de force. Yeah, I, got, I got a quick question. All right, please. I feel fortunate that I, I was baptized in it as an infant and don't remember it. Mm-hmm. So... Because it's really not my work. Mm-hmm. I know I was mm-hmm. because I have a piece of paper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I went to the church and it's in their uh, uh, record book, yeah, right. whatever, their book of life or something, right. whatever it is. Do you experience people that have been a, uh, baptized as an adult? Do they worry about that sometimes? Or what confidence can you give them that their's, their baptism is? the same as mine. 
Yeah, I think you're saying that what you love about it is you were so far out of the equation, you didn't even know it was happening to you, right? And and so there's this beauty of like, I couldn't mess it up. <laughs> that variable is taken out of the equation. Um, but now the, the beauty of this is it translates to any age, you know, whether you're baptized at five days or five months or five years or 50 years or whatever. The beauty is the certainty of baptism never relies in you, yeah. not your fervent faith, not your commitment of heart, not your decision, not your morality, nothing. That's the beauty of baptism, is God baptizes only sinners. He baptizes only unworthy and messed up people. And his baptism is sure and complete, not because it depends upon anything in us, but precisely because it doesn't. Because it's entirely his action to us, and thus it's sure and certain. So, whenever anyone is doubting their baptism, that's all we have to say. Um, and of course, it happens from time to time, too, that you get baptized, and then the, the priest or the pastor or the father, whoever it is, you know, turns out to be some terrible heretic or, or sinner or something, and not even a believer, and you go, oh, no, is my baptism valid? Well, let's go to Titus chapter 3 and see that it, in fact, wasn't the human hands that baptized you. It was God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ, that baptized you. And so it's sure and certain there's no way to mess up baptism. Um, there's only one Christian baptism, and that's what we confess in the creeds, what Paul gives us in Ephesians. There's just one baptism, and it comes from God, and it's inviolate. You know, Well, can I walk away from my baptism? Yep, you can, even though I'm a son of God. Yep, you can walk away just like the prodigal son walked away. And know that as soon as you want to return, the Father will be there waiting with his open embrace. And so that, that too is very, um, very good to keep in mind in terms of our baptismal relationship because how do we become sons of the Father? Through baptism. And many of us experience times in our lives where we have our prodigal moment and then we come back and we think, well, do I need to be rebaptized? No, you don't need to become a son again. You're already a son. The Father is already wrapping you again in that. What does he clothe the, the son with right away? A robe. Oh, my goodness. Almost as if Jesus and Paul are on the same page. All of you who have been baptized have been clothed in Christ. You've put on Christ. Yeah. So in Christ's parable, the son comes back, and he doesn't have to be reborn. He already is a son. He's already been born. That's parallel to baptism. He's walked away from that reality. He comes back, and he's given the robe of a son, the ring of a son, the sandals of a son. The feast is prepared. And he eats in table fellowship with the Father and the rest, which is portending to communion, of course. So, yeah, that's the comfort, is that it's all God's work all the time. Yeah. Great question. Thank you for that. All right, should we, uh, let's go a little further. Bottom of 129, we're going to hit another scripture verse, this one from 1 Peter 3. Wolf Mueller writes, we should no longer be surprised. Baptism saves us. Again, go back to that language. Um, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Father appeared, He saved us. Now, the next clause is negative, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So, all right, that's a negative clause. Let's let's see how positively He saved us. So we can eliminate that clause knowing that it's there and it's true. It's just to the negative. We're asking now what is the positive grammatically. So, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. How? according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration. So how does he save us? According to his mercy by, that is by means of, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
That's why Wolf Mueller says baptism saves us. Because if you really pay attention to that grammar of that text, it, that's exactly what it says. He saves us not by X, Y, or Z, but rather by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saves us not by our works, but by his work, washing us in new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All right, it's going to get clearer. We should no longer be surprised, Wolf Mueller says, baptism saves us. Peter says that very thing. Noah and his family were rescued through the ark. Peter compares this ark to God's gift of baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So again, do the, do the grammar. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, <laughs> but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, well, let's talk about that. So um, what Peter's doing is drawing a connection between the Ark of Noah. So the water um, of the flood... Was it killing or saving? Both. Both. Exactly right. Um, for those who were not in the ark, it was death. It was killing. Okay. For those who were in the ark, it was saving. It was saving them from the wickedness of the world. It was salvation. And so that's why he says um, Noah and seven others, right? Uh, and, and we liken that, the early church fathers all the way through up and to the Lutherans and all the way through, um, see in that ark an image and foreshadowing of Christ and his church, the holy ark of the church into which we are. Then for, for the, those in the ark, the waters save. And that's, that's the point that Peter makes. He says, well, baptism now saves you. Those same waters bear you up into the holy ark of the Christian church and in which is the righteous man, Christ Jesus, and seven others. <laughs> and um, that's, that's the church, the fullness of the church. All right, so again, um, that's what St. Peter's after here in this text. Let's talk a little bit more in detail. So baptism now saves you. I mean, that's really the point that Wolf Mueller wants to extract for us. And um, it's in perfect accord with Titus 3, where God saves us by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now baptism now saves you. All right, we can just talk about the end part, because when the text really says baptism now saves you, but you're a false teacher and you don't want to believe that, you're going to try to use the back half of this text to overturn what is so clear in the first half of the text. That's going to be what you're going to try to do. So, um, one second. I'll get to you in one second. All right, so you try, to, you try to twist and turn the second half of the verse to negate the first half of the verse. Well, don't do that. It's just bad. Baptism, which now saves you. Okay? Not as a removal of, of dirt from the body. Baptism doesn't save you in the sense of like, okay, this is a washing of external dirt. We already know from Acts it's a what? Washing away of sin. It's not a washing away of dirt from the body that matters. It's a washing away of sin that matters. With, that in, with the Bible interpreting the Bible, then we can understand what he's saying. It's not a removal of dirt from the body that saves you, but rather it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Why would you, why would you need to appeal to God for a good conscience? What, or on what basis, what basis would you have for that appeal to God for a good conscience? If he's washed away your sins, then you, have a, you can have a clean conscience before God. You could say, Lord, you have washed away my sins. Grant me a clean conscience, a new heart, a right spirit, on the basis of what you have done. And that, that experience of a, of a conscience washed clean by the waters of holy baptism, that is a state of salvation. That is a state of being a new man. And that's thus the latter part of this verse, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. So as one who has my sins drowned just as the evil world was drowned and washed away, and has now 
emerged and arisen with a clean conscience in the resurrection of Christ. That's baptism. That's my status in standing before God. That's what Peter's really trying to get after here. So don't let people use the the latter half of this verse um, to try to subvert the first part of this verse. Baptism now saves you. All right, let's pause. I think I saw a hand. Yes, please. I've thought about this, too, with regard to the ark or when we learn to swim. Mm -hmm. One of the first things you have to learn to do is not be afraid of the water, but to let the water hold you up and you do nothing. You have to rest on the water. Mm, Interesting analogy. The dead man's float. (laughs) And and if we fight the water, we drown ourselves. Mm, But if we accept what the water can do, Mm-hmm. We can float theoretically endlessly. Yeah, yeah. Well, in a sense, in a sense, you can see how baptism circumcision, because what it's what it's doing is it's bifurcating us invisibly, without hands, in a way no human could do, and it's cutting off the old man and drowning him and raising up the new man. With that same kind of view, the way that the the way that God sent the flood upon the world, it had the same division, didn't it? It took all of wicked, unbelieving humanity and drowned them and saved those who did believe. You see the split? Okay. So baptism saves us in just this same way. It comes and splits from us our flesh, our sinful nature, and drowns it, but buoys up, floats, saves, brings into a new creation the new man resurrected with Christ Jesus. So baptism has this division. Baptism kills and raises, and it divides right right through us in a way that only God could divide between old man and new man. That's why one of our hymns says um, that um, baptism um, in it, now in death completes you. It's this, I, or yeah, in, in death, um, baptism is completed is the sense, because um, what's dying in death is just the old Adam. Um, so baptism is then completed, at least that first part of baptism is completed when we die. The old Adam is definitively drowned forever. Now, where is, where is the other half of baptism completed and fulfilled? In the resurrection of our flesh, in the new heavens and the new earth, when we are raised bodily just as our Lord Jesus is raised bodily. And then baptism, the fullness of baptism is complete. So baptism is... It's something that happened to you, is happening to you, and will happen to you. <laughs> There's, you can talk about all of that, which is why we don't really tend to say, I was baptized, but I am baptized. You know, if I, if I was in the presence of my wife and I said, I was married, she's going to hit me. I'd say, what? No, I was married. You know, back, remember our wedding day? We, we were married. Yeah, but that's not a good way of putting it. We are married. It's misleading. So in the same way we don't say, I was baptized, we say, I am baptized. Now, nobody's going to jump down your throat, but you see the point. It makes, a, it makes a difference. So I was baptized, that's true, but I am baptized, that's true, and I will continue to be baptized up until baptism reaches its fulfillment. We're standing in the new heavens and the new earth, reborn, resurrected in Christ Jesus. Okay, well, like I said, a tour de force here through a bunch of New Testament texts. We haven't even gotten to the Old Testament which I believe the Old Testament teaches baptism every bit as much, maybe even more. Um, But we don't have to go there. So we're just sticking in the New Testament. Um, Next week, then, we'll pick up at page 130, 
And um, we're going to talk about uh, how baptism is uh, the gospel. It's God's salvation for sinners. And we're going to get into that question of uh, can babies be baptized? We're going to have Wolf Mueller's treatment on that. And since we already touched on it, maybe we'll skim, skim over that unless it's a big issue here. Uh, and then we'll just uh, we'll kind of march along through this chapter into the sacrament of the altar. All right, till next week, the Lord be with you.